lunatic, hero, or both. Hailed as the champion of moral virtue, hobby architect, zoologist, and amateur mariner takes maiden voyage in a hundred-year-in-the-making prototype mega-yacht. Upon returning to land, finding all living creatures had drowned by world-record-level floodwaters, Noah and his three jack-of-all-trade sons and their wives quickly bring back Earth's technology, repopulate cities, and restore natural ecosystems by releasing the animals in the ship's private zoo, allowing all known creatures, birds, and insects to come back from the brink of extinction. Welcome everyone to episode 11 of the Higher Calling podcast, presented by the Avondale Church of God. We left off in our last episode, 10, discussing sacrifices and offerings and the roles and responsibilities of a priest, and have every intention of continuing and finishing the Hebrew study. Uh, Next up would be Hebrews chapter 7. However, we'll extend this interlude by at least one more podcast, because we'd like to discuss the value of having the voice of God and His Holy Spirit communicate with us, lead us, and guide us as we walk our Christian walk. We started with a fun little story about Noah, his family, and the benefit it was to society as a whole that he had an ark with a private zoo, and that his jack-of-all-trade sons were able to bring back technological advancements that would have been lost had the ark been crewed with less capable people. And as a 30-second soundbite, the story sounds somewhat fantastical and unrealistic, and maybe coincidental that Noah would get on board his mega yacht, sail off on a maiden voyage, and then return to land with just what the world needed to repopulate and to come back. Well, we know otherwise. We know that it was more than just coincidence. And let's look at the story a a little bit in more detail. Genesis chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. So we see some important characteristics about Noah and why Noah was the right man for the job at this point of time. Let's look further here in Genesis chapter 6 at verse 13. A very important quote here. And God said unto Noah. Well, what did God tell Noah? In the following verses, he gives him the blueprint for the ark. And we read in verse 22, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Well, now we have an ark. Now we have the prophecy that there's going to be rain and a flood. And although it's compiled in very few few verses, a lot of time passed. Noah had a lot of time to think about these instructions from God. He had a lot of time to let his humanity wonder and speculate and perhaps double think God's instructions. Well, let's go into chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Noah, again, he gets instructions to bring two of every kind of animal. And we read again in verse 5 that Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. This time, Noah had much less time to speculate and think and probably had little to do with it. 
only having one week to gather two of every kind and some more of other types of animals, Noah didn't have a lot of time to wonder nor go out and hunt down all these animals. God and God's spirit had to lead the animals to the ark. However, Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Very critical quote, and we'll be referring back to that a lot throughout this podcast. Genesis chapter 8, verse 15, And God spake unto Noah, saying, Get off the ark and bring forth abundantly, basically, is his next instructions to, to Noah. And guess what Noah did? Verse 18, Noah went forth, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' sons with him. Again, Noah did according to all the Lord commanded him. He got off the ark. And verse 19, every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds went forth out of the ark. You know, things aren't so far different today. There is a flood of immorality sweeping over the world. And there is one ark of safety, and that ark is under God's wings, underneath the shelter of God's commandments, with the walls of salvation, in the church that preaches the one true truth of God's word. The moral of this story is that Noah was the champion of moral virtue and did what God told him to do, all he was told to do, and didn't try to change it, tweak it here or there. Well, how do we know? Well, let's say if, hypothetically, God wanted the wisest person in the world to do this instead of Noah, well, maybe we wouldn't have black widows, mosquitoes, crickets, vampire bats. Somebody, instead of Noah, maybe the wisest person in the world would have looked at God's plan and said, well, if I were to make a zoo, I wouldn't want to have funnel spiders in my zoo. Well, God's plan was otherwise. You ever hear the story about the green M&Ms? Some famous band had this really intriguing concept to test the manager of the venue for their concerts. In their orders for the venue, they requested to have M&Ms backstage. And the story either goes only green M&Ms or all M&Ms, but no green M&Ms in there. However it went, it's a test to ensure the manager of the venue had actually read the entire request. And I'm sure I got some of that wrong. But the point here is there's parts of God's plan that we don't always get, but they are there to make sure we're obedient. Ask King Saul how changing God's plan for his kingdom worked out for him. Worked out very poorly. And we're not ever going to understand all the intricate details of God's orchestration to get things worked out. And if we look at our Bible, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit, and saying, well, I'm not super pleased about how our Bible is written. I'm not super pleased about the plan that it lays out. I think that that God could have done things differently. God should have done things differently. And if you go to work out your own salvation without God leading you in that direction, you're going to come up with a salvation and a religion that is significantly different. Maybe, maybe you just have some M&Ms of the wrong color inside your plan. Or maybe you keep green but leave out your red M&Ms. That's not what God wanted. And I really appreciate Noah's example to us. There were mosquitoes on the ark. 
There were black widows on the Ark. There were vampire bats on the Ark. Why? We have no idea. I heard a, a very clever scientist say something the other day about ticks and how they're parasites and pests that get on the animals and drive the animals crazy by causing them to itch. And the scientist mentioned, well, there's no reason for ticks to exist in the circle of life. Some animals are very useful. They eat the dead things and help restore healthy soil environment. Ticks do not. But there were ticks on the ark because God had a plan and Noah stuck to God's plan. So let's carry this a little further, going to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. This is Paul writing a letter to the Corinthian church, and we've spent some time in Corinthians in the past, so bear with me in my repetition here, but it's so critical for us to really dig into what Paul is trying to express to the Corinthians. And he said, Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. And then skipping down to verse 13, 14, and 15. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. You know, there's a lot in these scriptures, and I'd like to spend our time unpacking them with the goal of increasing our faith in God and studying the process involved with, as it says here in verse 2, being presented as that chaste virgin to Christ, which is preferable to the alternative, um, which of course explained in verse 3, being corrupted by alternate philosophies, alternate gospels, and although sharing a similar name by nature, another Jesus. So, Paul as a missionary or evangelist to the Corinthian church, um, we know this church had a lot of congregational issues. And reading through these two letters, we find carnality being the root cause of several behavior problems. And it was really a disgrace to the name of Christ. And in the community around, for those looking on, to see the disorganization and really corrupt religion that was practiced by perhaps most in that congregation, we don't know, but it was enough to be disruptive. Well, Paul wrote these letters, and here in chapter 11, he stated his goal, which was to present the congregation as a chaste virgin. And that's the archetype, right? Christ is the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. So in various places, we'll read a couple here. Isaiah 62.5 brings Jerusalem out as the bride. Um, For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee, 
And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. And he was uh, speaking of Jerusalem, which was the Old Testament archetype of the church, corroborated by Revelations 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And down to 9 and 10. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So we have this visual concept of the relationship between Christ and the church, or everyone who is saved, and uh, Christ being the bridegroom and the church being the bride. Now, it's more than just any type of bride. The church is a chaste virgin, and that's a descriptive word. It's not an accident. It's not simply poetry. I mean, it's poetic, but this is intentional descriptor of what type of church the Corinthians were supposed to be patterned after, Chaste, C-H-A-S-T-E, means guiltless, virtuous, modest, wholesome, undefiled, demure, ladylike, maidenly, and of course virgin, which the scriptures use all the time to compare false and true religion. Look, Babylon being described as the great whore, and the Old Testament describing idol worshippers as adulterers, someone who has broken their marriage vows. And the chaste virgin is speaking of holiness and purity, especially in doctrine. So, reading through these two letters to the Corinthians, Paul wanted them to encourage one another in holiness, particularly in chapter 5, speaking of putting out from among them fornicators, covetous, idolaters, railers, drunkards, extortioners, and ended up uh, chapter 5 verse 13 saying, put away from yourselves that wicked person. And we know that there really were bad actors that were trying to worship with the congregation. It was that bad. And Paul said, look, you've got to clean house. Well, thank the Lord for true ministers, true pastors called after God's own heart that act as watchmen on the wall and say, we want quality more than quantity. We will not water down our message just to get more people through our doors and to have a bigger congregation. And there's a sense that Paul's burden, I mean, we should all feel that same thing. To be a congregation of people presented as a chaste virgin, more than just a white wedding dress on, more than something that just looks like a bride, but having moral character that has the attributes and testimony of a chaste bride. Colossians chapter 3, 5 through 8, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. 
And, you know, perhaps some of this is geared for those who are going through the maturing process. This is no joke. Where are our values at? To come to the wedding having put God first, having a testimony of living a chaste conversation, or perhaps the alternative, the entire time growing up to really be pushing the borders on how you act in front of your peers and how we act and talk in front of the person that we're attracted to. We've seen it how many times that those who can submit themselves to God in holiness are more likely to be better husbands, fathers, wives, and mothers. Now, there's so much more in these scriptures, more than just admonition for, you know, those of us that are literally getting prepared for marriage. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11 and 3, going back to our original text, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Okay, how does that work? This simplicity that is in Christ. And then as we look at Eve's mindset, the intellectual discussion that she had with the serpent about what Christ said. This is how it works. Verse four, for if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if he receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Well bear means to support, to encourage, to back up that message. Skipping down to verse 13 through 15, descriptors of someone who would come and do this to a congregation, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. There's so much in this, uh, whose end shall be according to their works. So often um, a minister looks like a minister of righteousness, but teaches another Jesus. And, And in today's day and age, there's two primary things that are affecting the religious dialogue. The first thing is an ecumenical spirit. Can we just not all get along already? That is ecumenical and is not supported by scripture. And the second thing is, is living holy. Any mainstream religious institution that you can name is really fighting hard against the doctrine of holy living, being pure, not just having moral values, but living it and acting it out in their life. You know, these verses here in 2 Corinthians 11 paint a terrible picture of perhaps some really nice and sincere people. And it's great that it paints this terrible picture because it can help open the eyes that behind the, the smile, behind what seems like a sincere attitude, are motives of pride, motives of wickedness, motives of trying to gain some type of following and independence from historic traditional characteristics that helped the church be great. And let's dig into this emotional response from Paul. He has this godly jealousy, perhaps terrible fear that it could happen to this congregation, this Corinthian congregation that is teetering on the brink of either collapse or if they handle it right, 
success. And he's looking at just the threats in the religious world and saying, please, please do not support, do not well bear with the message, the false message that is going to be brought to you. And the Corinthian church was pretty young in faith. All of those new converts were hungry for righteousness, hungry for more learning, for someone to lead them and teach them how to act and follow Christ. You know, they had Jews that saw the law of Moses as a kind of bondage with corrupt leadership in the chief priests. And there were Gentiles who came out of idolatry, who saw really nasty stuff happening in the name of religion, and they wanted change. The good news of the gospel was ringing true, and it was a critical stage in development in Corinth. Paul was seeing a danger of some charismatic, friendly, nice person teaching and preaching a different Jesus. And he brought up Eve and how she started to mull over the words of God and encouraged by the serpent, just rethink those phrases, ye shall not surely die. Well, is that really what it means? God really, did he mean don't eat of the tree that standeth in the midst of the garden? Don't even touch it lest ye surely die. And here comes the serpent. Well, it looks good for food. And really, if you study the words out that God said, perhaps that's not what God meant. It's not that bad of an idea after all. Well, we know how that story ended up. And that's what Paul says about false doctrines that seem reasonable. And if you really study it out, you can come up with a contradictory take on simple, basic Bible doctrines. Well, except for what? What did Noah do that helped this incredible story even come to be when he listened to what God told him? And let's look at the nature of a husband and wife relationship. This is the very comparison, right? Of of Paul wanting to present this Corinth congregation as a chaste virgin. You know, uh, a husband and wife that has been married for any period of time knows each other very well. And you know, can be doing something and hear the other person call out, well, be careful about this or be careful about that. You know, I personally have been married for 11 years at this point and I can be doing something kind of sloppy and hear my wife's voice in my head. Well, don't just leave that laying there. (laughs) Or you can make the paint roll in straight lines or you missed a spot when you were mowing the grass. I mean, My conscience basically speaks to me in her voice. Well, those who've had their spouse pass away after being married for a long time. Here's an example. My grandmother was able to be there when I was married at my wedding, and she said it was beautiful. Your grandpa would have loved to be here and would have been so proud. And she knew, perhaps 40 years after my grandfather had passed, what he would think about the event. She still had him right there in her heart. Spend any time with someone who's had their husband recently pass or their wife recently pass, and they'll be able to quote to you the same jokes each time they they would come home from work or um, the same things they would say when they did some activity together. That's the kind of relationship that Christ wants with his bride, with his church. And even from Genesis 
to the end of the Bible, it's very clear that God intended marriage to be um, like that. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. And that concept is both in Genesis and here in Mark chapter 10, where we just read. So bringing this full circle, the word of the Lord came to Noah, and Noah did as the Lord commanded. How is our relationship with Christ? As we go about our day, does a scripture pop into your brain when you exercise casting down imaginations? When confronted with sudden fear, does that perfect love you experienced in your salvation help you with your emotions? We're married to Christ, right? That understanding of our Bible is available for us. When we have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, maybe we don't know exactly where to find each individual scripture, but the context of the scripture is available to help us answer questions. And maybe we don't even quote it perfectly, but well, here's an example. Um, why won't you go to the bar with your coworkers for happy hour? Well, here's a good answer. I've been studying the Bible and I'm reading plenty of scriptures that admonish me to live soberly and warn me against consuming alcoholic beverages and even warn me against being in the presence of other people that are starting to lose control of themselves. And well, that's the effect of drinking alcohol. And so that's why I don't want to go to the bar to hang out after work. Maybe I'm happy to go to lunch with you sometime and and share in a professional environment, but after work, I'm going to go and have family time. After work, I'm going to go to church, or after work, I'm going to engage in an activity that doesn't cause me to contradict some of the values that the scriptures teach me. Well, let's build on this idea of hearing the voice of Christ. John 3 and 29, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy thereof is fulfilled. There's that sense of the relationship. Here's John the Baptist making that connection. And by the way, when he was in the womb and Mary and Elizabeth were talking, he reacted to Mary's voice. And that's the relationship. When we hear the voice of the groom, the bridegroom, it's a recognition, a humility, a submission to that voice. Another place, John 18 and 37, Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end I was born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. So we can and should know our Bibles. And it's extremely sad to hear religious people go on and on supporting ideals that are contradictory to scripture. And once we start to think that the Bible isn't enough, that outside study materials are really required to understand the Bible better, that we get to be on really dangerous ground. Yes, it can be valuable to read outside study materials, and it can be very useful, but only when the scriptures are the blueprint and the character of God doesn't have to change to fit the new light that you may find 
in the outside study materials. And that's the theme here, that the voice of God, the bridegroom, leads us into all truth, not just wandering from place to place. You know, you have enough pride and enough independence in your humanity that it doesn't take much to give heed to seducing spirits and to lose the salvation, to lose the little bit of faith and turn it into an intellectual, self-righteous relationship between you and and whomever that you're that the new religion that you find um, might be based on, and this concept of an an angel of darkness masquerading as an angel of light is something to really be aware of and to be certain that that you keep yourself away from. Well, with that, we'll wrap up this podcast. It's been a pleasure, and we trust that you found the discussion both challenging and encouraging. As always. Thank you for listening, and if you have any comments or would like to contact us for any other reason, please visit www.ceasesinning.com or email us at biblestudy at avondalecog.org. We love to hear from our audience and would be happy to further any discussion or pray for a need you may be experiencing.